Welcome back, everyone. So nice to see you on this beautiful June evening here on Guimas Island. I hope it's nice where you are, too. Well, tonight we take up the fourth realization, and that's the realization around indolence. I'm looking forward to this because of our discussion on desire earlier kept pointing us toward this one. So I'm hoping this is a, a, a good continuation of that. I'm going to share my screen and put this up. Would someone be willing to read this for us? And if you are, just please jump right in and do that. The fourth realization is the awareness that indolence is an obstacle to practice. You must practice diligently to transform unwholesome mental states that bind you. And you must conquer the four kinds of Mara in order to free yourself from the prisons of the five aggregates and the three worlds. Thank you, Margot. So this fourth realization, it tells us what we've heard from our mothers and our teachers and our coaches and just about everybody except Thich Nhat Hanh, and that is don't just sit there, do something. Yeah. Get going. Get off the couch. Make something of yourself. Get it done. But this realization is more nuanced than that. It says that, but it says more. It's the counterbalance to the realization on desire. These two inter-are, they go together. The realization on desire says, those with few desires and ambition are able to relax. And yet this realization says, you must practice diligently. So when we hold both those together, we have to live in this ever-shifting middle ground between them. And how do we do that? So that's what I want to really talk about tonight, is that shifting middle ground between them. So if we define indolence, it's not really a word we use that much in English, but we can, we can talk about it as, as laziness. Um, and that's, that's its usual usage in, in English. But as often as the case in Buddhism and Zen, words have a very specific meaning and they've been translated from other words that were specific, but we put a, a general word to it. So it has a, it has a very specific meaning. And, and indolence means failing to act on what we know. Failing to act on what we know. Next week, we'll talk about ignorance. You know, and ignorance is ignoring the truth, but indolence is failing to act on the truth. So I like to think of this fourth realization as a wake-up call to wake up. A wake-up call to wake up. It tells us very clearly, don't wait. It tells us clearly to practice now. Right now. Not with the next breath, but this one. Not after this Sangha meeting is over, but right now. 
And it tells us to practice diligently, diligently. And if it tells us if we fail to practice, we will fall prey to the four kinds of Mara, the five aggregates, and the three worlds. So what are these things? Uh, I'm going to make the case that it doesn't really matter. Oftentimes when people read this, they're thinking, okay, that's what we really have to go into, the four kinds of Mara and the five aggregates and three worlds. But the reason I say it doesn't really matter is because those were ways that the Buddha described suffering so people in his time could understand it. And the Buddha lived in a philosophical era and, and spoke a language that was analytical and was taking things apart, that was looking at things clearly and, and trying to understand scientifically what was going on. So there's all sorts of lists of these sorts of things in Buddhism. So it's, it's very common that we'd have these four kinds of Mara, and here's the four, and the five aggregates, here's the five, and the three worlds, and these are the three. But we live in a psychological era rather than a philosophical era. And so we have a whole different language for our suffering. So rather than the four kinds of Mara, we might talk about anxiety and anger, and addiction and apathy and aggressiveness, ambivalence, abandonment, and on and on. That's just the beginning of the A's. We could go on and on. We could spend the whole night elucidating our language of suffering. So while it's really important that we eventually understand the metaphors the Buddha used, tonight I don't think it's that important that we understand them. I think we know what our suffering is in our own language right now. But the underlying point is that if we're lazy and we don't practice, suffering will surely follow us, no matter how we describe it. So this realization says, don't wait. Practice now and practice diligently. Okay, why should we care? I mean, why don't we just stay in bed and eat bonbons? Why don't we watch Netflix all day long? Uh, you know, why should we care? Well, practice shows us that without the clarity from diligent practice, we'll experience the world as a chaotic river of events. And those events will trigger automatic reactions in our mind and our body and our feelings. So I just want to say that again. Without the clarity that arises from diligent practice, we experience the world as a chaotic river of events. And those events will inevitably trigger reactions from our mind and our body and our feelings. Trigger reactions automatically. And so we become like a machine, or we are like a machine, actually, right now, that automatically responds like this when something happens like that. And, you know, we're, without a diligent practice, we're not free. We're simply at the whim of whatever the river brings by. When I, since I was a little child, I've carried this question, what should I do? How should I respond to my own chaotic river of events? 
And that question, what should I do, was a koan for me before I even knew what the word koan was. It was something I wondered about a lot, and still wonder about a lot. And unfortunately, much of my life is spent repeating the same habitual reactions again and again and again. I've been like a machine, simply reacting to this chaotic river of my life. Anybody recognize this? Uh, do you feel like maybe this has been part of your life too? And this is the human experience. And it's why we come to practice, because we realize that this is not how we want to live. We don't want to just be a machine. We want to be a free person, able to not just react, but to respond. So this realization encourages us to shift and transform our habitual reactions so we can be that free person. And we become free by not wasting a single moment of this precious life. Not a single moment. We have to be diligent. We can't be indolent. So how is it we, not, we go about not wasting a single moment? Well, I want to propose two ways. One is by not doing too little, and the other is by not doing too much. Not doing too little and not doing too much. So let's take up not doing too little first, since that's the, that's the, the most um, obvious interpretation of this realization. The seventh mindfulness training of the order of interbeing is dwelling happily in the present moment. And it says, aware that life is available only in the present moment and that it is possible to live happily in the here and now. I am committed to training myself to live deeply each moment of daily life. I am committed to training myself to live deeply each moment of daily life. Our teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who suffered a great deal in his life, wrote that mindfulness training from his own lived experience. He committed his life to living deeply each moment in order to transform his suffering, to transform his ability to respond to the river of events that he was facing. And his life faced enormous challenges. He faced war and destruction and death and loss and exile, among other things. Far more than I think most of us have faced. I mean, certainly not me. I have not faced those kinds of horrific experiences. But Tai knew how to practice so he didn't remain trapped in habitual reactions to the river he was floating in. And he showed us the way to practice from his lived experience. So some of the things that, that has, have mattered to me in his lived experience that came into his teachings are, uh, he was deprived of his home. You know, he left Vietnam to participate in the peace process and the government did not trust him because he wouldn't take sides and so would not let him back in the country for more than 40 years. So imagine what it feels like to be unhomed that way. 
where the people he wanted most to help, he could not go home to help. The people he loved and grew up with, he could not go back to be with. So he suffered a lot. What did he do? What was his transformation? He learned to find home in every step that he took. He couldn't step on the soil of Vietnam, but he could, re he could arrive home with every step. And he wrote a poem about it. I have arrived. I am home in the here and in the now. I am solid. I am free. In the ultimate I dwell. He found home in every step. That's how he transformed his river of suffering. Another thing he did when he was battered by grief and loss, he actually went and took refuge in grief and loss. He took refuge in the very nature of birth and death. He learned to see the compost in the rose and the rose in the compost. He learned to see the mud in the lotus and the lotus in the mud. So as his friends were dying, as his fellow countrymen were dying, he learned to take refuge in the very fact of birth and death. And he transmitted that to us. And one, just one more thing. When he was separated from his Sangha, this was great suffering to be separated from your Sangha, especially when you're a monastic. So what did he do? He built a Sangha from non-Sangha elements. He built a Sangha from Westerners who did not understand the depth of Buddhist practice. He, he built Sangha in a language that he had to learn. Can you imagine offering this deep and subtle practice in a second or third language? He transformed his, he transformed his suffering with diligent practice so that his many reasons to be angry and to despair, to become indolent, maybe even catatonic, were transformed. And this is the practice we've inherited. This practice that it contains the seeds of deep suffering and profound transformation. How could we be indolent with this gift? How could we not take this gift deeply to heart and accept it with gratitude and rise to our own practice of diligence? So not doing too little means fully engaging with practice right where you are. Ty engaged with it where he was but you need to engage with it where you are, right where you are on this path, whether you are just stepping into the path or whether you've been on this path for 30 years, right where you are is where you practice diligently. And right where you are in your life circumstances, that's where you practice. It doesn't matter whether your life circumstances are very comfortable or very difficult. It doesn't matter if things aren't exactly as you like. You practice right where you are in your own circumstances. 
you look at the river that you are in and you vow to transform your understanding of it. So not doing too little means practicing with diligence, but also with joy. This isn't something we gut out and grind out. You know, not doing little, too little means living on this knife's edge between indulgent laziness on the one hand and a kind of joyless self-flagellation on the other. Right in, right in that balance. And no one can find that except you. No one can tell you what the right balance is in any moment. That has to come from your own practice. So speaking of joyless self-flagellation, how about we talk about doing too much? Doing too much. So ours is a practice of balance. We practice diligently and we show up just like you have shown up week after week for this practice period. You are practicing diligently. Many of us show up six mornings a week to sit together. We show up week after week for um, all sorts of practice. We do it in our daily life. We, we use our gatas. We do all these things. But we also in our practice have lazy days. We have guided relaxations. When we're on retreat, we have hours away from the cushion. We don't sit on the cushion all day long. We get up and we go home. We feel the sun on our cheeks. So not doing too much has some really deep roots in Zen. This isn't a new concept. It's, uh, it's been taught for a long time. So I want to tell you two stories. One is an ancient story and one is a modern story that point us towards the balance of doing not too much here. So the first story comes from 8th century China, from one of our Zen ancestors, Mazu. And Mazu was a very eager student. Talk about diligent. He just embodied diligence. He sat hour after hour in meditation and expended far more effort than any of his fellow monks. And one day, his teacher saw him meditating outside his hermitage and said, I see that you meditate more than anyone else. Why? And Mazu answered, I want to become a Buddha. So his teacher bent down and picked up a broken roof tile and a stone and began rubbing the two together. And Mazu watched him for a while and then he said, Master, what are you doing? The master said, I'm polishing this tile in order to make a mirror. But how can you make a mirror by polishing a tile? The master said, how can you make a Buddha by practicing meditation? So I see some smiles and I see some, hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, you're in good company because Ma, poor Mazu didn't get it either. So we had to ask a follow-up question. So we asked the master, well, then what should I do? And his teacher replied, if your ox cart doesn't move, which do you whip, the cart or the ox? Ah, Mazu understood that. Yeah. So let's, let's un unpack this a little bit because these stories could be kind of hard to, hard to access. 
So Mazu was making effort, but he wasn't making right effort. You know, indolence can be failing to act, but it can also be whipping your ox cart. And Mazu was whipping his ox cart. He was exhausting himself with fruitless effort. He was doing too much. You know, what his teacher was trying to show him by picking up a tile and rubbing it with a stone was that you can't make something into something else simply by unhelpful effort, by too much effort. Mazu was already a Buddha. He just didn't know it yet. All that meditation wasn't going to show him. But you don't have to worry about poor old Mazu. You know, he, as with many, in many Zen stories, uh, this, this story ends by, and Mazu woke up. Mazu woke up. And he saw that he was already a Buddha. And he saw that he'd been trying to polish his roof tile into a mirror and that he had been whipping his ox cart. And he went on to be a great teacher. Great teacher. Lots of stories about Mazu. Really fun stories. So that was an ancient story, but let's talk about a modern story. So this happened at um, the tragic events of 9-11. So at that time, Thai and the monastic community were on a teaching tour in California. And the, the planes crashed into the World Trade Center towers. And some of the senior monastics went to Thai and said, I think we really we need to come out with a statement. Um, the world is suffering greatly, and the world really needs your wisdom. And Ty's response to them was, um, no, we're going to go to the beach. And so the next day, the whole monastic sangha went to the beach, and they enjoyed themselves. They rested. And at the end of the day, they did exactly what they had suggested the day before. They wrote a statement that they could release to, to help the world, to comfort the world, to express compassion and understanding. And the statement that re they released was a much deeper and truer and effective statement than they would have released the first day. Because they needed to not whip their ox cart and rush to doing something too soon. Tai knew that what they needed to do was rest and come home to themselves and find their true heart of compassion and understanding so that they could express that true heart rather than a heart of fear or anger. So this realization points us towards right effort. And right effort and mindfulness inter-are. Right effort arises when we observe mindfully. It just naturally arises. We know what to do because we've seen clearly. And that's what mindfulness is, it's seeing clearly. And then mindfulness itself is an expression of right effort. M mindfulness practice is that balance between doing too much and too little. So when we stop and pay attention to what's going on, we can be confident that we're not whipping our ox cart because we know what is effective action as opposed to just action. We don't have to worry that we're 
polishing the tile with a stone and trying to make a mirror that will never appear. When we come home to our true self, to our deepest core, we find that the whole world will guide us in this right effort. The whole world will guide us. The whole world will show us when to work and when to rest. It will tell us when, we're when we need to give and when we need to receive. It will hold us in awareness of the cycles of growth and decay and birth and death so that our action will find its right place within a larger whole. We don't have to just run around expending effort, but mindfulness practice brings us in touch with our true self and all our true self and everything around us will guide us toward effective, diligent practice. Balance between too much and too little. And you know, we have to walk this path ourselves. There's no teacher, there's no book, there's no Dharma talk that can say anything that replaces our own time and effort. That voice of wisdom that lives inside all of us. No one can do that for us. That truth that arises when we look deeply is universal, but its realization is always deeply personal. Always deeply personal. And we each have to realize the truth for ourselves. No one else can wake us up. No one else can practice this realization. So, pick up your whip, but don't whip your ox cart. Pick up your whip, but don't whip your ox cart. I'd like to read the realization one more time. The fourth realization is the awareness that indolence is an obstacle to practice. You must practice diligently to transform unwholesome mental states that bind you. And you must conquer the four kinds of Mara in order to free yourself from the prisons of the five aggregates and the three worlds. So thank you for your non-indolence and your diligence, paying such a beautiful and close attention throughout all these words. Shall we enjoy two sounds of the bell?